Hey, I'm Anthony Avila. And I'm Andrea Murciano, and welcome to Bridging the Gap Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. In today's podcast, we will be talking to Dr. Cook, a primary care doctor, researcher, and faculty member at the University of Florida. We hope you enjoy the second episode of the Health Literacy Season. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for uh, giving us some time to talk about uh, health disparities today. Um, so we wanted to start off, if you wanted to introduce yourself. Sure. Hi, you guys. My name is Bob Cook. I'm uh, an internal medicine physician uh, trained in primary care, and I'm also a clinical epidemiologist. So I'm a faculty member here at the University of Florida, and I do research related to infectious diseases, and I work with a range of students. Yeah, that's great. So how did you, um, how did Dr. Cook get to the position that you're in today? Like, what, were there any specific events that led you to being an internal medicine physician and doing the, being an epidemiologist? I don't think there's any specific events. Uh, both of my parents were teachers, and so I think I always liked the idea of teaching or being in an academic setting around students. Um, when I was in college as an undergrad, I just found myself interested in health-related issues, but also I was pretty good in math, and so I liked math and computer issues. And epidemiology is a science that kind of connects, you know, numbers with uh, health. And epidemiology is also a science interested in prevention, and so I became interested in prevention. And then I think I did sort of go to medical school as the HIV epidemic was first emerging, and I found it to be fascinating both from a medical aspect, but also a cultural issue. So I've always been interested in health issues that, that sort of have both a medical part and a cultural part. Um, so Dr. Cook, what does medical like prevention mean to you uh, in terms of, uh, you know, because you say you also, you're involved with working uh, with primary care? Sure. So in primary care, you know, it is a lot of prevention that we do. Um, it's really important because our goal is to prevent things like heart attacks or things that relate to behavior. So for example, I'm also interested in preventing HIV infections. Um, and now some of my research is even looking at things that might influence biological aging. So we would be interested in things that would prevent your brain from becoming demented as you get older, if we could ever learn how to do that. Uh, but prevention is also kind of frustrating as a doctor because people don't usually see the benefit of it. And so I'll ask people to do extra tests or to take certain medications that might help them to prevent a heart attack. Um, and, you know, people really never know if they actually did have something prevented. They just know that they have to take extra medications and extra tests and and so in some ways, it's not a fun thing to do, prevention, uh, but it's a smart thing to do. And part of our job as primary care doctors is to motivate people to do things that are preventive. So uh, why uh, this specific either medical field slash um, medical field and population? Like, why did you decide to focus on that? Yeah, well, again, I think... It's interesting when you look at a whole medical school class and, and some people come in, you know, already knowing they want to be a neurosurgeon or some people come in already knowing they want to be a, a radiologist. Uh, some people choose those professions because of the prestige or some people choose different professions because of um, finances. And in, in some ways, again, primary care and preventive medicine is not necessarily the most lucrative field. Um, but it is a field where you really do get to talk to patients. I really liked the idea of having patients that I could get to know for many years and who we could become, uh, have a trustworthy relationship. Um, I read, you know, books and literature when I was in medical school about different types of doctors. And I was always attracted to that doctor that would sort of be kneeling at the patient's bedside, holding their hand as, as they were sort of sick. And uh, I had, you know, medical school professors that, that I looked up to. Some of them were specialists. Some of them were more preventive primary care. 
And ultimately, I, I truly couldn't decide which way I wanted to go. I ended up taking a year off from medical school and going to get actually a master's degree in public health. And I had been exposed to public health as, a, as an undergrad. So I think that, you know, when that combination of you know, getting a, a degree in a public health school and ending up being inspired by certain primary care doctors who I really looked up to, those were the things I think that ultimately felt right. But, it, you know, it's, I, I do think that all of us that go through medical school, uh, there is something different about us that, that why some people are more attracted to certain specialties than others. As a primary care doctor, I have to be content that I'm not going to be, you know, the world expert on anything. So I know lots of knowledge about lots of different fields, uh, but I'm not truly an expert at any specific condition. And that's just something uh, I have to be comfortable, therefore, with some uncertainty. When I see a patient, then I have to be comfortable not knowing exactly what they have, but at least, you know, try and at least distinguish are they really sick or not. Uh, some people are not comfortable with uncertainty. I think some people really need need to feel confident and need to feel they know 100% what's going on. And so that that type of personality may fit better in a specialty field, whereas someone who's you know more comfortable having a general idea of what's going on, but I don't have to know exactly the truth, um, I can be satisfied as a primary care doctor and focus on things like prevention. Yeah, I actually, I was shadowing a, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Null. He, yeah. Yeah. So I was actually shadowing him this past, um, this past spring semester. And he, he actually mentioned that he said, you have to be comfortable knowing that you're the jack of all trades and master of none. And that, that really, um, that really stuck with me. I think primary care is something that, that resonates us, resonates with us all because like you mentioned, it's not the most lucrative field, but it is a field that is extremely important, especially for preventative medicine. So it's something that as a pre-med student, I definitely need to consider. So I was actually curious because Andre and I were actually talking about this prior to joining the, the call, but was there a specific reason that you took the year off to do your master's in public health? Is there any recommendations as to why a student like myself should do a master's in public health? Do you think it has benefited you more because, uh, as, as a physician because you did that? Well, they really are very different perspectives. I mean, a doctor almost always, you know, it's one-to-one, -one, what should this patient receive? And you really are trying to, sometimes we still think in probabilities, like there's a 60% chance this person has this and maybe a 40% chance they have that. But you're still trying to decide for this individual person what's the best decision. Um, and public health, you know, now you're looking at this 60-40 split and saying, wow, 40 people do have it and 60 people don't. But for each of them, it's real. But, but at the population level, um, again, you also begin to realize how little differences that may not be that noticeable to an individual person can have an impact across the whole population. And um, I think in my case, again, I, I took that extra year off, one, because I couldn't decide uh, what I wanted to do yet when I grew up. And so this was sort of a convenient way just to sort of take a medical school can be like, for me, a rapidly progressing train that's heading fast to the end of the track. And at the end of the track, you know, you're going to be a certain type of doctor. Um, so that year off was sort of me stepping off the train, letting my classmates sort of go by while I, I did sort of think about what I wanted to do. But, you know, I'm proud. It, I also was interested in a research career, and I think that the Master's in Public Health does expose you to sort of population-based research, so you learn about different types of research study designs, like clinical trials or longitudinal studies, and I think you, you know, you learn about health disparities, and you begin to think about why are there health disparities, um, and again, in my case, you know, I was interested in these social issues. So an individual doctor has a hard time, you know, dealing with social issues that affect their patient. So if a patient uh, is, you know, got transportation problems, it's you know, frustrating for the primary care doctor to think about how they're going to fix that. 
Um, but from the public health side, I think we can begin to do research to show, wow, people with transportation problems um, have much worse outcomes with diabetes, for example. So maybe if we, you know, suggest policies that make sure that our patients can have transportation, we can improve diabetes outcomes in, in this group of people. One other point I'll just make that in my case, you know, there are combined degrees that medical schools offer. And, and so the University of Florida has one too, a combined degree in, in, in medicine and public health. And you sort of get to share credits. You know, you get to use some of the med school credits to count for the MPH and some of the MPH credits to count for the medical school. So where if you did each degree completely separately, it would usually take six years. Um, but usually in a combined degree like that, you can finish in five years. I also, during my public health year, you're supposed to do an internship, and I got to go to the country, Chile, for two months as sort of a combined medical school public health elective, and that plus a couple of other international experiences were, for me personally, the, the most, you know, memorable times of my medical training. Even in residency, I did a few things internationally, and, and it just really was also a very interesting way to look back at the United States from another country and see certain things that actually we, we do pretty well in the United States. But also, for example, when I was in Chile, every pregnant woman that had a baby, you know, had home visits after that, and they had rice given to them, food given to them, and it's a nice public health program that, you know, we didn't have in the United States, something that everybody that has a baby gets. And so I could see some things that other countries did in terms of a public health that that I thought they did better than what we do here. And, and I certainly would encourage people that are thinking about medicine or in medicine to consider an international experience. It really is very informative from both individual patients, but also looking at a health system and how we provide health to people. Uh, the next question I wanted to ask is um, specifically with uh, the population that you work with in Gainesville. Um, or I mean, maybe uh, outside, even even outside of the Gainesville community, what are some health disparity health disparities that you've noticed in the populations that you've treated? Yeah, well, as a primary care doctor, I can truly say I think diabetes um, was the biggest one. I mean, a lot of my patients had diabetes, and certainly it's linked to obesity and uh, linked to you know the types of food that people can eat, and so. Um, people that had enough income that they could buy, you know, vegetables and actually make them taste good or buy more fish or things like that, um, you know, tended to have an, an advantage over people, for example, that if they only had a few dollars but they were hungry would, would invest in the potato chips because that would satisfy a need. And I think even on the health literacy side, you know, trying to convince people maybe that didn't understand research as much, you know, the true value of eating healthier foods. And if they can't afford it, there's not much you can do, even if they do believe you. But I think diabetes was particularly frustrating because it is preventable that we do have treatments where people can control their blood sugars, but those treatments cost money. Um, there's a lot of individualized treatment with things like insulin and different medications. And I think if I had a patient in my office who I wanted them to sort of monitor blood sugar, and if it was a certain value, then you would take six units of insulin, but if it was a different value, you might take 10 units of insulin, and they would nod their heads as I'm communicating with them, but when they got home, I'm, you know, maybe they remembered, or maybe they understood, I don't know, but diabetes is a big one. Um, people would get admitted at the hospital a lot with blood sugars out of control, and that was always very frustrating as a primary care doctor, you would think, wow, did I just not communicate with them enough? Or, you know, why did they let their medicine run out? Or, you know, you, you're frustrated at times trying to think about the behaviors. But um, diabetes was a big disparity. I think certainly smokers had different health issues than non-smokers. And I think that we did see disparities in smoking cigarettes. Um, it's probably a lot different in the 1950s and 60s where there wasn't so much of a class thing, but now we do see, again, lower education, lower income population, potentially more addicted to tobacco, and it's associated health issues. 
And then finally, just that, you know, different types of health insurance really could contribute to disparities. I know that if I was evaluating people who had health insurance, I could often offer them different types of diagnostic tests or different types of medications that might be better than people who had no health insurance, in which case, you know, I might, again, accept the uncertainty and, and just assume certain things and, you know, go with lower cost medications, which most of the time were honestly just as good. Uh, but there were times that, you know, I had to go with a lower cost medication that probably wasn't as good. And so those are, you know, disparities. We, we all, in HIV, certainly race is a big one. Um, we have huge health disparities in that African-American women, for example, are almost 10 times more likely to have a HIV infection than a white woman. And again, the reasons are complex. They're probably more social than biological, and it's not even behavioral. It has to do with communities and neighborhoods. But you begin to see that people that live in certain neighborhoods just have worse health outcomes than other neighborhoods. At this time, Dr. Cook, Andrea, and I lost connection. And so we tried our best to stay on the same topic of conversation. But if it changes a little bit, that's why. Hello. Hello, Dr. Kirk. Thank you for joining us once again. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. No worries. No worries. Um, so you were kind of, you were just talking, you, you mentioned race and specifically African-Americans and how it is neither biological um, nor social, but more based on the fact of where they're living, um, correct? Well, I think there's some of all of it. Um, again, in, it's again, in public health, I can say, yeah, there's no one one root cause for racial disparities. And there are larger racial disparities in some areas than others. But I, I was thinking more of its income is, is a common disparity, especially if you look at, um, you know, access to nutrition, access to transportation, access to parks or gyms where people could exercise. Um, and, and then even just the chronic stress of growing up without those things seems to be you know, have a biological effect. So I think that disparities are are real. Um, as a doctor, it can be frustrating if someone doesn't have insurance and, and you really want to help them, but they don't have insurance. And that, you know, that, that could be independent of race. Um, certainly if, if people are from another country and they're visiting Gainesville and maybe um, so uh, a student's here from China and their mother comes and their mother only speaks Chinese, talk, I know you're thinking about health literacy some, but, but there's a challenge too as a provider if, if you don't even speak the language. Um, and then of course, trust. Trust is really important. And if you trust people of a different race or ethnicity, you may not be as willing or motivated to, to do what they are recommending. Yeah, I agree. It's all about that relationship, which you mentioned, and we can go into deeper a little bit later because I mean, the relationship is extremely important from patient and uh, physician quality of care that you can provide. But we, we talked earlier with Dr. Geyer. She's also a professor at the University of Florida. She does the health disparities minor. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she, she's also mentioned how your zip code is a, is a great predictor to your health. And whatever zip code you live in, you can just tell a lot more about a person than, than other, fact, than other um, variables. But what techniques have you used as a primary care doctor to increase facilitation of communication? Yeah, I think that I, I can think of many patients where I might be just talking to them. I mean, it, it, things have changed a lot with electronic medical records. And so a lot more doctor-patient communication happens uh, almost with the doctors back to the patient typing on a computer. Um, so we do try to turn the, you know, the desk so that even if I am typing, I can still face you. Um, but I, I think that, you know, listening is really important, but often I think a person's listening to me and they are. And so maybe I recommend that they take 400 milligrams of ibuprofen three times a day because of their shoulder pain. And I say, well, you don't really need a prescription because, um, you know, you can get some ibuprofen over the counter and just take two of them. They're 200 milligrams each and they nod their head and, and it's all good. But did they really understand that instruction? Um, it's, I, I do believe if I do put it in writing, if I type it in and say, go take 
400 milligrams of ibuprofen. Um, I, I hope if I give them that in writing, that will be helpful compared to if I just say it to them and they nod their head and, and seem to understand. Um, I think with the diabetes example I gave you at the beginning where, where we were talking about different doses of insulin depending on what their blood sugar would be, um, again, I, I might assume that they understand because they're nodding just like you guys are right here, but unless I ask them now, repeat back to me and tell me what you're gonna do, um, I'm just guessing that they understand. And so that's another tip is to ask the person to say, now tell me uh, back what I just told you. Yeah, and that's definitely a technique um, that Dr. Geyer talked about with us, the teach back method, you know, uh, mm. when you say, okay, so as you mentioned, you know, tell me what you understood. And that's usually a good indicator if, um, you know, they understood uh, what either the prescription or, you know, whatever you were trying to tell them. I wish I could say we did it more, um, but I'm not sure 100% we we do it much. It's, it's just such a crazy, chaotic office environment. One challenge I really have is, is so many, especially older adults, have four or five different chronic diseases. They're taking different medications for cholesterol or blood pressure or diabetes. The patient's there because they want to talk about a, a, you know, some type of sore that they have in their arm and they want to know what it is. Or a lot of people have pain or emotional problems they want to talk about. And, and that's their agenda. But my agenda is to you know, make sure they're on the right blood pressure medicine. And I think that is something that's the tension in that visit. We're, we're sort of taught, yeah, if you want to do proper prevention, your job as a doctor is to get the blood pressure down, adjust the medicines to make it happen. Um, but yet, as I also mentioned early in, the, in our discussion, that prevention is not much fun. Uh, it's not much fun to tell people, well, now go take another pill uh, because your blood pressure is not good enough. They feel fine and they want to talk to you about what's bothering them, but often what's bothering them, I don't have a good solution for, um, for example, chronic pain. So, you know, that, that makes communication and trust different too, because our agendas are sometimes slightly different. So I do try to talk to the residents about um, asking people at the beginning of a visit to, to list everything they want to talk about on the, you know, before we even start communicating, we only have 15 minutes. I could do this the same with you on a podcast to say, tell me all the questions you want to ask. And then I'll say, well, I've got time to answer three of those. So let's pick the most important. And by the way, I'm really interested in this one. So then I can pick something that's on my list that I do want to be sure I talk about. But I also give them the opportunity to say that, well, the most important thing they want to talk about is, you know, their concern, their memory is going or, um, and usually their most important concerns are not the their blood sugar is not good enough or their blood pressure is not good enough. And, uh, and if their concern is they want to lose weight, again, as a physician, I, I feel sometimes frustrated at you know, my lack of tools to really help with that. Um, maybe I want them to quit smoking, but they don't really want to quit smoking. And so again, these communications happen. But I do think that if, if, you know, if we can lay on the agenda, what do they really want to be sure we talk about? Um, that gives me at least a list of things. And if it's just too many things, I can say, look, you know, we can talk about some of these today, but um, we can talk about some the next time you come in. But when you told me you had crushing chest pain last night, you know, maybe let's, let's make sure we address that one today. Um, and not, you know, when you're walking out the door, say, oh, by the way, can I talk about my crushing chest pain I had last night? So to lead in uh, more to, this, to the discussion of health literacy, um, what do you define health literacy as? Well, I, I saw your question and thought about it and uh, looked up a few definitions, but I, I think it's really, it, do you understand the health information uh, that we want you to understand? Uh, is, is in the communication, is the doctor or provider nurse providing health information in a way that the patient can understand and act upon? That's how I would define it. Effective communication. Have there been any specific experiences with you and a lack of health literacy with the patients that has, I don't know, maybe stuck with you? I know I asked you earlier if there's been any specific events that have led you to the current circumstances you're in, and that's always the case, but it, it is it is lack of health literacy is still prevalent. Um, have there been any 
of those specific experiences that kind of stick with you and that come to mind? Well, I think it's hard to, to know the reason why someone may not engage in a preventive behavior or why they don't take their diabetes medication accurately. It certainly could be a failure of communication on my part. It could be misunderstanding on their part, or it, it could be that they're just not motivated to do it. So it, it's often difficult to tell. I mean, we try to think of ways we can assess reading. And to be honest, I, I've had, other than language issues, um, and I, I'd like to think I look for it, but, but less evidence that people can't read uh, information than, than I suspect is really out there. Because um, we do know, and even in my research, we, we often give people surveys that they're gonna fill out themselves. And there should be a way that I can assess, do you understand these questions or can you even read these questions? And so for the surveys, I, I have them read a few practice questions. Um, I tried to think of some specific examples, but again, I, I, I think just not following through on specific medications that, I, you know, I said, you're gonna go get this medication and you're gonna start taking it. And then the next time they're like, no, I didn't do that. So is that health literacy? I, it, it is contributing, um, you know, and again, it, it certainly was an effective communication. Um, I think if I give people certain recommendations for diets, you know, you've got high blood pressure, there are certain foods you can, you can avoid. Um, I'm hard pressed to think of a specific patient, whereas, you know, it's an aha moment, a great story for you guys. Um, it, it's more just these general things about, uh, you know, people not showing up to get a test that we've ordered. Um, I can tell you, I personally have an incredibly difficult time understanding my insurance copays, uh, my bills. I don't know if you guys ever look at any medical bills and it's, it's incredibly confusing. Um, I can't understand it. Um, even in informed consent that we do in research, uh, there's a lot of link, legal language in the consent conforms and I, I worry that people understand what we're really trying to, to say. Um, but the most frustrating times that I think are when people are not where you, you know, they didn't go to an appointment that you hoped they would go to, or they didn't get a new medication that you hoped they would get, um, or, you know, they didn't follow a recommendation. I'm, now I'm speaking as a provider whether those are failures in health literacy or whether those are, are people that are just not motivated to do it. Or again, as I said, preventive stuff isn't much fun. Um, a lot of people have, you know, mental health problems and substance use problems on top of this that, that don't help. Um, so health literacy to me is a broad thing. I used to think of it just as could they read the information? It's almost like a written communication, but I'm, I now think it's much broader. It's can I communicate this information? And if I can do it through a picture, or if I can do it through writing it, or if I can do it through an email, um, certainly emails are difficult. Um, we're starting to give people access to their own medical records. And it's beginning to make me wonder, you know, what we say in the medical records. Um, another example is people will come in with an ad for a new medication, and they're pretty convinced that this new medication must be used. And so how people interpret information on the web is, is also a challenge. And we try to think of how we can tell people to go to a reputable source of information. So if someone wants to know, should they take, uh, you know, this anti-malaria drug for COVID, as they heard the president say it, and, you know, they log on to the internet, how to help people distinguish which medicines, which information they can trust. Um, Again, again, people don't even trust the government, so it makes it hard because one of my favorite sites is something called medlineplus.gov, where if you go there and you type in, you know, diabetes or you type in Parkinson's disease or, or Alzheimer's disease, I think you get some really good credible information. Maybe if you went to the mayoclinic.com, you'd probably get some good credible information. But if you just Google Parkinson's disease, you know, how do you choose from, you know, the top 10 sites that show up? And that to me is part of health literacy. And even my own kids, I try to tell them, you know, don't believe just one site, you know, see if you can find a second site you trust that says the same thing. And then maybe you can feel more confident. 
Um, but how people deal with that information on the internet is, is, is also a true challenge because more and more and more people are using that instead of going to a doctor. And, uh, and even as a doctor, I'm looking up information sometimes when I have a patient in the clinic and I've got to choose which information I trust and which information could be hype. If someone's deciding, should I get a vaccine? Um, you type in vaccine, you know, one of the top five or six hits you get maybe a, a true anti-vaccine site that looks like a legitimate site. Uh, but when you click on it, it tells you how many babies got ear infections after vaccine or, um, you know, that how many people, you know, there's lead in some kind of vaccine or mercury in it. And so how we can help people get that information is also, I think, a critical need. It's important that we make patients realize that they also can take their own health into their own hands, but there's adequate, there's specific ways to do so. And I mean, I guess that could be a technique that more physicians or practices take into play and, and, and start putting more practical tools into the patient's hands. Uh, but yes. Yeah, we've tried it. We had a, a project here at UF where a health sciences librarian was in the clinic and um, asked us, you know, with a prescription pad to write down a specific website with more information and, and send people. Um, I did it, but at the time I was also somewhat skeptical this was going to work either. Um, we've had, you know, research studies come in where after the patient left the doctor's office, you know, one of their team came in and, and again, tried to say, cite back to me what they said and let's make sure that you understand. And they're all good ideas and they're, I'm sure they're not harmful, um, but it's still hard to know what's truly effective. Um, people have to have a mindset where they're really receptive to the information and sometimes, yeah, we do think that the white code does it. Now we're moving to telemedicine. It's, it's, it's new. People actually, I think, are liking it because they don't have to go and sit in a waiting room and they don't, you know, wait for an hour. You know, they can wait and get a call and say, all right, get online just like we did here. Um, but now how is that going to help with communication? It actually could be better. I could turn on the chat and, and write something to you or I, I could, um, you know, share a screen with you and show something. But how it's going to help or hurt I don't know but I actually I, I think it will help reach people who have been avoiding the healthcare system for whatever reason but we still may need to have health workers to help people understand what the doctor told them to do whenever I do re research about the proportion of people that don't quite understand what the doctor told them it, it always is um, surprising because I, I, I like to think I'm communicating well. Um, but I have, you know, I think medical students, health professionals have got to accept that we don't always understand. And even if I look at the papers when I check into a clinic and they say, sign this consent, and, you know, I'm very frustrated with those types of things. I, I think there's room for improvement across the board. So how is you know, you mentioned like your frustration with uh, like the lack of understanding, um, maybe like the protocol or health of health um, healthcare lingo. How has that shaped your practice when you do interact with patients? You try to look at them and 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 see if they seem to be understanding. I mean, we do use a lot of facial expressions, and and that's something that can be hard to do over telephone. Um, I try to stop myself um, from just rambling, which is. I'm not doing a good job with you guys. Okay. I try to write things down though. I, I, I think in, you know, with our electronic medical records, we can create something called an after visit summary. And so I, I do try to write in there some specific instructions and print it and hand it to them. So I, I feel good about that. If, uh, if I do have some written patient information I can give them, I try to do that. Um, because again, I, I think people are often distracted and, and don't always understand or listen to everything I say. And again, I sometimes if something's really important, I might put more emphasis on that. And even, you know, I, I went to a therapist recently who looked me in the eye, a physical therapist, and said, if you're going to do this, I can't help you. It's very empathetic. I mean, not, not empathetic. It was emphatic. It was like, this is serious. And I think we can sometimes try to do that too, to really distinguish the most important messages from those that are general conversations or general advice. I kind of want to go into the telemedicine 
uh, topic that you were mentioning. And, and I really do hope that, I mean, for us, for example, that our, us as students, we're starting to realize that this is actually a really great tool. Like you're telling me that I can, I can stay home with my mom and my dad and my friends and my family back home and, and get just as much done, maybe even more from the comfort of my home, just with my laptop and then some pen and paper. But I would really hope that telemedicine is, has a, has a great impact on patients. And like you mentioned, even more people that have been kind of avoiding it that don't necessarily have such as easy access to healthcare will start getting more, seeing their doctor more often. But what, do, what kind of changes do you see being made in the healthcare system that combat poor communication and improve patient understanding? Well, I, I mean, podcasts like yours, there's, there's certainly an awareness uh, that this is a big issue. I think more than when I was in medical school, I certainly hear it talked about more. I see, um, you know, my colleagues, especially in primary care, try to do more with it. Um, I just think that it's, it's just jumbled up with a lot of extra legal requirements and documentation to cover, you know, certain requirements or billing things that, that I think are fighting against that. Um, I think telemedicine has a lot of advantages, uh, but my mother who lives here in Gainesville, she's 86 and 50-50 chance she's gonna be able to connect to a Zoom meeting. Um, you know, it just has to be perfect. It just has to be click here and open up and not say, oh, do you wanna download the latest version of Zoom? Or, oh, you know, you <laughs> turn on your microphone, click the mute button. But it does sound like though people, once they've sort of experienced that the first time, they get better at it. So, but how to deal with people who have poor internet access, like you and I just had um, a little bit ago, um, how to deal with people who have, you know, they're old and difficult solving issues. If it does say, do you want to download this new version of Zoom? Um, you know, I think that we can do more with um, healthcare workers that are, not necessarily medical assistants, not necessarily nurses, but that are uh, just community health workers that, that could in theory go to a person who's homeless under a bridge uh, in Miami, you know, and, and bring a iPad. Um, this is an example with my HIV research, but you know, that injection drug user under the bridge in Miami, you can give them an appointment at the HIV clinic and say, come on in, we'll give you your medicines. Um, and Surprise, surprise, they don't show up. But if you went to them with, with a telehealth thing and a community health worker said, look, you can log on and you can talk to your doctor right now. Are you willing to do it? Anecdotally, people would say, sure, put them on. You know, so I do think that with HIV, another challenge we have is achieving viral suppression. We have medicines now that people can take every day that would suppress HIV virus and, and let people live a essentially normal life and let people uh, not transmit the disease to others. Yet at the population public health level, um, you know, only 60 to 70% of people achieve that outcome. And there's 30 or 40%. And people have created incredible interventions to change the system and, or change things in clinic to improve health literacy in a clinic. And they just get, just a little bit better. Um, I am pretty convinced we really do need to reform the way we deliver health if we're really going to reach those people, uh, the people that don't come to the clinic as much. We do need to somehow bring healthcare to them um, or meet them where they are or better address, you know, what they're interested in at the same time that we address their blood pressure. And, and I do think that the telehealth is given us that potential advantage to really change the way we deliver healthcare. Um, now there's a lot of questions that are going to come up now about you know, what kind of quality of care will it be? Do we need to do physical exams? How often? Um, you know, people aren't going to want to pay as much. <laughs> They'd be like, why do I have to pay, you know, $120 when I just talked to you for 10 minutes? Uh, in a doctor's office, you can say, well, you got my nurse, you got my clerk, you got my billing person. Um, you got this space, you got these drapes, you got that pillow, you got that computer. Telemedicine doesn't need any of that. And so um, it's going to be at times complicated to see how that shakes out. 
but I do think telemedicine can really help. I think, you know, we do give people access to my chart at UF Health. Um, I can email my doctor and, and, and request a prescription refill, but there's still some skills that need to be learned there. And again, my mother is not going to be good at logging on to my chart. So I, I think we do need to think of ways to help and a really older person use the technology that could help her. And, and I'm not sure all the solutions yet. Um, you know, people are at home, old people at home, they can barely walk. Say, bring them into the doctor's office. They got an appointment at three o'clock with the pulmonologist and, you know, they show up at 3.15 and they cancel it. You know, you're too late. And, but that person has been like two hours trying to get into a car. And so how do we bring the telemedicine to them? I think that that could allow us to have more frequent conversations with them. Um, so for example, if I am monitoring your blood pressure, um, instead of waiting three months until your next appointment, maybe we can communicate more frequently or my nursing staff can communicate more frequently with you and, and we can maybe even set up you know, an electronic blood pressure cuff at your house so we can monitor things at home. Um, but people do need to learn how to use the equipment and you know, people need to be able to have the equipment and people need to be able to have things like internet. How, how can we use students, a meaning um, where pre-healthcare or healthcare students learn effective communication? My number one tip is to learn to listen, you know, try to listen and then try to, um, I, I was taught in medical school to take a relentless history, you know, just to really try to get the story, you know, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. Uh, because I am pretty convinced that for most medical problems, just from the doctor's perspective, just listening, um, you can figure out what's going on. Now, how we get the patients to listen when we communicate back, I think that's where I think we can, um, we can try to do some new things. Um, but what you and the health students can do is learn to listen. Um, I learned a lot by having a video recording of me interacting with the patient. Um, I really was surprised at, at how often I wasn't looking at them or or how often I was typing while I was talking to them. I didn't notice it in real time, um, but when I watched the video, uh, it was pretty stunning. And, and I think it really did give me a message because it came back to eye contact. Even on Zoom, it's interesting, you know, I, I know if I look up here in this camera that you might think I'm looking at you, um, but if for whatever reason, uh, your picture's over here on this side of my screen, you know, I'm not even talking to you. So I think that we can think of how to we even learn how to do Zoom communication um, by putting putting your picture up, up here. So when I talk to you, I'm, I'm now talking to you. Mm. Uh, but I, I think that listening um, and it's so hard when you're in a hurry. Um, but but listening and, and being willing to be videotaped uh, or tape recorded so you can hear what you sound like. And uh, that can be good feedback on how to be a better communicator. And again, don't make assumptions. I think that's the hardest thing is we assume people understand. Um, even, even people that are educated or uh, people that we definitely assume, oh, this person's you know, a PhD, they, they, they know what I'm saying. Don't make assumptions. Maybe the same tricks of say back to me what I just told you, uh, provide things in writing. I saw a physical therapist today. He gave me three exercises to do. At the time, I understood. Now I'm at home. Um, what if I don't remember? So actually, he gave, gave me these. I'll show you why, in fact, this particular piece of paper is really nice. Um, you know, he's not only, you know, highlighted certain items. He's got pictures, and he wrote little handwritten things, like do this with your left leg. I'm smart. I think I'm smart. I, I think when I left the office, if you asked me right away, I could have said back, oh yeah, I know the exercises. It's six hours later, I'm not going to remember. Uh, so I, I think that providing people information in writing is, in addition to communicating, is, is very helpful to help make sure they know what they're supposed to do. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's actually a really good piece of paper. If I was, if I was a patient for going to see a physical therapist, that'd be helpful because I can often remember just 
forget sometimes like warm up exercises that I that I think are pretty useful when I when I go work out or or cool down or whatever, or whatever it be. But I do like what you mentioned about the the videotape really helping you out. Uh, I think that made me think as as a pre med or even a healthcare student we could also rely on our peers to give us information on maybe what do you think I can do as, as a classmate to communicate with you better? Um, that's just being open to uh, criticism. And I think that could actually, that could actually make a really big difference. But Andre, you were, did you have a comment you wanted to make as well? I lost my train of thought. Um, I, what I, what I think I was going to say, I think I was just going to share um, something that I listened to. I was, or where was it? I can't remember, but I was listening to um, an audio book about pediatric care. And it was very interesting how they were, like it was called Grand Rounds, something like that, and how they were able to diagnose just based off of talking to the patient. And, you know, um, and I think I went to, they have like a small uh, junior medical school, whatever, basically, it's just to get students to go um, in and kind of tour the medical school, but not as, not uh, that haven't applied yet. It's just, you know, if you're interested. And they also mentioned the importance of taking a history. Um, and they had us, you know, uh, uh, ask a bunch or uh, write up a bunch of questions. And it was interesting um, how we debated all together, like what questions were better questions to ask? Well, I do, I do think medical school, I got trained pretty well on how to do that. And I hope that medical schools and PA schools, um, even nursing schools continue to teach it. I do think that we, we should be able to be good listeners. I, I do think it's much more of a challenge in, in how we communicate to patients. Um, that's an opinion, but I mean, obviously we can always all improve as listeners, but, but I think that we can't understand the comprehension on the side of our patients sometimes unless we actually do uh, work a little harder to make sure that, that we confirm that they understand what we're saying. And as I said, even if they can repeat it right back to me in the office, um, and they get home and, and they say, oh, a doctor told me to take two of something, but I forget which one it was. You know, it's that quick they've forgotten it. So um, I do think that we make assumptions that people understand, and they, they do understand at the moment. Um, but, and then we often, you know, as soon as the people leave, you know, write down all our notes, and that helps us to remember what we said and what they did, because we kind of document it right then and there. Uh, but the patient, again, often is, you know, off to another appointment or off to a store or has a baby crying that they got to go change a diaper. It's, it's, they're distracted. And, and so I do think that we, we can write down key things and give to people. And even if they can't read very well, somebody else could read it. And it says, it says to take two 200 milligram ibuprofen tablets and don't take more than four at a time. Um, we often just say, oh, just follow the labels in the bottle. So people do research on that. Do people understand the instructions in the bottle? And, uh, you know, and pass legislation to try to make the instructions more easy to follow. Um, but often I want someone to get, if they have a cough, I want them to go get a cough syrup that has dextromethorphan in it. And, um, you know, can they, can they select from the range of 100 cough medicines on the shelf? which one has dex which ones can they look at the ingredients and tell you know they might they might prefer it if i say get you know nyquil or dayquil or something specific okay so to start um kind of winding down our conversation um some of you some we have a couple of like closing questions so what kind of message do you want to give uh give students aspiring to become health professionals I think it's an honorable job. I think your job is to help people. Your job is to, you know, as, whereas many jobs are to make money, many jobs are to um, write computer code. This is a job to help people. So it's a very idealistic job. And in the end of the day, you know, if, if you can go home feeling like you help people, um, you, can, you can be proud and, and smile and think that you did a good thing. Yeah, so just not really forgetting what you um what you went into that field for. So just last question: If you could change one aspect of the current healthcare system, what would it be? 
I think the billing and documentation, I think we've really gotten into um, so much of the conversation. I was very frustrated my last visit to the doctor. He just went down a checklist. Um, I wanted the doctor to talk to me like I'm talking to you. I hope I talk to patients, you know, in a more conversational way, but it was just a really a checklist kind of thing. And, uh, you know, um, that was frustrating. And I think that because of this, you know, billing issues, um, I, I just think people are frustrated because, um, you know, they don't feel trusted. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it just doesn't make as much logical sense, but electronic medical records were supposed to help with this. They were help, supposed to help uh, share information across, you know, if you, if you saw me and then you, you ended up seeing a different doctor a few weeks later, they could look and say, well, how big was the rash then? Oh, I see it was three inches, you know, and, but, but there's just so much uh, legal and billing information in there that I think it's, um, it has made the job a little less fun figure out the perfect combination of like simple conversation and professionalism um, to make the patient feel comfortable with the information they're providing you. Um, and that's kind of, a, that's kind of what we're dealing with too here on, uh, on the podcast, like to keep it, we want good information, but, and we want you to, to give us the best quality information, but we also don't want you to feel like it's like a, it's like a Q and a kind of like, um, like a Q just a simple Q and a where we're not even, interpreting we're just asking questions um because it, it, it is just supposed to be a, a good conversation but uh dr cook i really appreciate your time um thankful for for you being on here and um that's we just respect your time but yes thank you so much yes thank you so much for you know for wanting to speak to us and just have a discussion good luck you guys talk to you later thank you on today's episode of bridging the gap we spoke about the importance of health literacy and you know some of the important points that Dr. Cook made was the importance of communication first of all um, how do we have a good and effective communication with the patient as well as how we communicate uh, specifically you know with health literacy whether it's through you know email in person or even receiving information after a visit. We're hoping that this was informative to you on highlighting some important aspects of health literacy and hoping uh, that you can take this into your future practice. So thank you for joining us today. It was, it was truly a pleasure having Dr. Cook on. If you have any questions or comments though, please be sure to send us an email, which can be found in the description, but please stay tuned for the next episode and we'll see you soon.